Would you join me for prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that, uh, as just has been sung, that you are the constant, you are the eternal God. You never change, you have always been, you always will be. Indeed, you are Yahweh, the great I Am. And we worship you here at Bethel Church in our hearts, in our congregation, in our community. We worship you as the great God, and we offer ourselves to you today in this act of worship, this corporate gathering, as we, uh, we come to you as sinners, we come again in need of your grace, we acknowledge to you that we have often failed you this week, and yet we delight in the fact that you welcome us for Jesus' sake, that we have access because of what he has done. We give glory to him. We thank you for your spirit who we invite here powerfully and effectively to do his work of convicting and uniting and uh, transforming, indeed of regenerating, and we would love to see that happen today. So Father, Son, and Spirit, triune God, we offer ourselves to you and we worship and praise you. We bless your name. We pray that we'd be blessed by your name and who you are today. And Lord, as we gather, we know indeed there are uh, our dear brothers and sisters here carrying many a weight and many a trial and many a tribulation. Father, we pray that you would speak into their hearts the word of encouragement, the word of comfort, the word of healing, or whatever needs to be said to resource them to make it through another day. God, I pray that you would do that. We ask as we come to your word that it would be powerful we know that it is powerful. Lord, we pray that our hearts would not be dull or dumb, but that we would have ears to hear and that you would speak to us by your word as we tremble at it and know that it is true. It is your revelation. So we ask that this would be a wonderful time together in this service. Keep us from any thought that you can't do something remarkable right now. And we pray that you would. To you be the glory. Amen. Amen. We had something special happen here this week. Thought I'd tell you about it. For a couple years now, we've been a venue that the Northwest Indiana Symphony will use maybe three, four, five times a year. They'll have a concert uh, here. And we had one of those concerts here this week. We've done this for some years. We're happy about that relationship. It's, it's great for us to have a, it's a little bit of a role in the community in that way. And, and so um, we're, we've developed a relationship with them and uh, it's, it's good. So anyway, this week uh, they had a concert and they've been advertising it and, and it's been on the schedule for a while that uh, would feature a violinist who would be playing on a Stradivarius. Now, I'm pretty sure that we've never had a Stradivarius come through the doors of this church. So this was something that was quite noteworthy and, and uh, we were kind of interested in. In fact, we asked them the value of this Stradivarius. They said it's between five and $10 million. So, yeah. Well, you may not realize that our own Pastor Gary Butler has been a violinist, I think, most of his life and grew up playing violin and played 
um, like in the D Des Moines Symphony when he lived there and, and still plays on occasion for special things around here and we, we always love it when he pulls out his violin. So he likes the violin, he loves the violin, we love Pastor Gary. So we saw this as an opportunity. Stradivarius is coming to Bethel Church, Pastor Gary has been here, something pretty cool needs to happen. And so this video is what happened. you don't know is right after this outtake happened, he dropped it. So we're going to take a second offering right now. <laughs> he didn't drop it. I'm just kidding, okay? He didn't drop it. Uh, but something that did happen that he told me was that uh, I guess standing right there next to him was the violinist, probably with a gun, and uh, he... Uh, the, the violinist said, I didn't recognize the, the number that you played. Uh, what, what's, the name, what's the name of, of, of what you played? And Pastor Gary said, well, I, the name of it, and this actually is true, is I'm not worthy. Uh, so, which I thought was really funny, and it's fallen flat. This is the third service in a row that it's fallen <laughs> flat. But when you have the opportunity to play a $10 million Stradivarius and the song you pick is I'm not worthy, I find that somewhat humorous myself. <laughs> So, indeed, that's, that's what happened. The world obviously highly values Stradivariuses, and when you put millions and millions of dollars of stated value on a piece of wood, you are valuing that highly. And this is what our world does. Our world monetizes, materializes uh, everything and puts a price tag on it and says this in our mind is what what this is, is worth. And this is the world that we, that we live in. It is a world that the Bible calls a corrupt world. It is a world that gets these values wrong. The things that are, in God's eyes, really, really valuable, the world will put a price tag or a, a worth on and say, that's not so valuable. But things that are not so valuable uh, in the eyes of God and don't really mean that much the world looks at and highly values and treasures and says this is what brings meaning and purpose in life. We live in a world that is constantly longing, constantly craving, constantly lusting, constantly wanting more and more and more, and hoping that by having that, it will derive some meaning and some significance and maybe... Uh, identity, something that I can live for in my life. That's the world that we live in, isn't it? 
You know this. This is the world that you live in as well. And clearly, something has gone desperately wrong when we live in a world that what really is valuable is not so valuable, and what isn't so valuable is viewed as being incredibly valuable. Something is broken. Something is desperately wrong. The Apostle Paul describes what is wrong in Romans 1. This is what it says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, note that, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What Paul says there is that the world that we live in is living according to a falsehood. There is a deception that is at work in this world, and the whole world is living according to it. What is that deception? Paul says the deception is that in this world, meaning and significance is is derived from created things from the world itself rather than what it is made, what we are made to derive our meaning and our worth and our identity from, namely our creator who made us and made this entire world. And so the world has it upside down. We're made for God and the world lives in a kind of denial of God while it seeks to derive God-like meaning and worth and worship out of things that God made in this world. You see what it is? It's all upside down. We've got it. We've got it backwards. And it's no wonder we live in a world and have people all around us who are so despairing, wanting to find some hope and satisfaction in things that God never made to do that for us. And maybe you're here today in a kind of despair because you've been living for things that God never made you to find satisfaction and worth and ultimate value in. This is the world that we live in. It's like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you are for more. It's sad. It is to this world that the Apostle John turns his attention in this letter, 1 John, that we've been studying. And remember, his intent here is to assure every genuine Christian that they are actually under the grace of God and to rattle the cages of the pretenders and the professors who think that they're under the grace of God, but are not. And now he uh, comes down, and I'm telling you, he just, he just smokes us, okay? He smokes us in these, in these words. Notice what he says, 1 John 2, our text today, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. Now, many people read this text, and they see it as a kind of indictment on the world, and I suppose it is uh, in, in a certain way. And they read this, and they say, see how bad the world is? And, and, and maybe you grew up in a kind of Christianity with, like I did, where there was a lot of talk about the world and worldliness, and it always revolved around uh, places that are worldly and things that you do that are worldly. And I want you to realize, first of all, from the text, that's not what John is getting at. He's not even really concerned about the world. He's concerned about the church. And specifically, he's concerned about where worldliness really lies. And it is not out there. It is in the human heart. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And what I am valuing and what I am living for in my heart. The world has a whole way of living and a whole thing that it says this is what life is all about. Christianity says the opposite of what the world is saying. And we see then how John now is developing this, this another evidence, another uh, uh, fruit or proof that I am a Christian. It has to do with the loves of my heart. Do I love the Father or do I love the world? Because I can't love the Father and love the world at the same time. Now, first of all, we've got to make sure we know what we're talking about when we talk about the world. Okay? What world is John talking about in 1 John 2? He uses this word cosmos a lot in his gospel and in First John, and he uses it in different ways. And so the context uh, determines the meaning. And you have to keep that in mind as you read through John, because he uses different kinds of world. For example, he says famously in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What world is he talking about there? He's talking about the world of humanity. He's talking about the human race. He's talking about sinners. He's talking about people. That's the world that, he, that he's using there. John 1, uh, John writes that Jesus made the world. Now, what world is he using there? And clearly, he's talking about this, this physical world that we live in, the universe, the galaxies, the atoms, the molecules. And to that world, the Bible makes it clear that Christians are we're not to hate this world that we live in. Rather, we are to uh, enjoy this world that God has given us to live in because all of it is telling us about him. Romans 1 says that. And Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so we as Christians, we see here at Bethel Church, we believe in sensory worship and we see these pleasures that God has given to this world as ways by which I can enjoy God and enjoy these pleasures for his sake. And so we eat to the glory of God and we drink to the glory of God and we do everything to the glory of God and we enjoy this world, uh, all the good things in this world, all that God created, we enjoy it for his sake. So clearly that's not the world that he's talking about here in 1 John 2. What world is he describing here that we are not to love and if we do love we go to hell? He's talking about the world as a system, the world as a perspective, the world as an approach and a value system, a philosophy of life that is set against God. Indeed, hates God, is hostile 
to God, wants to live as if there is no God, certainly doesn't want a moral God, and definitely doesn't want accountability and judgment. The world as an entire religion set against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as revealed in the person of Jesus. That world that we also live in every day. It is that world that John is referring to. The value set, the priorities, the motivations, the things that it is seeing as being ultimate, the idols, the gods of this world and the pursuit of them. John says, don't love that world. And if you do, you don't love the Father. Here's what some others have said about this. The world, the organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God and alienated from God. Another, the goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward, to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. They burst with selfish desires rather than heartfelt supplications. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him. Or else they use him for their own selfish ends. Worldliness is human nature without God. And here's the thing. Even as I talk about this, it's hard for me to understand this. I know that it's hard for us here because this is our normal. We were born in this world. We were reared in this world world. We live every day in a world that is operating according to a value set that is anti-God. And yet to us, this feels comfortable. It feels normal because it's all that we've ever known. It's like the old wag, does a fish know that it's wet? And you're like, no, why? Because it's never known what dry is. All that it's ever known is water. And all that we have ever known, especially here in this culture, is a value set and a priority set that values and lives for this world and this life. And I've got to have all that I get in this life. And the more that I have of this world, the more successful I am. And the more that I have of this world, the, be- the, the, the more important that I am. And if I have the right things and the right body and the right technology and live in the right places and if if people admire me and if, if I have a sense that I am in this world somebody important, then I am somebody important. That's the world that we live in, isn't it? Particularly in American Christian culture. We are the richest, we live in the richest country in the history of the world. We are the richest churches in the history of the church, and we are the richest Christians who have ever walked the planet. And if there is a kind of place where a misunderstanding of what it means to love the Father and try to love the world is at risk, it is in a Laodicean culture like we live in. And yet we don't even realize it because it's all that we've ever known. We just live here. It's like the Truman Show, that old movie where he's in an artificial world. It's all that he knows. He's living in that. And then all of a sudden, a wall falls down. And he's like, there's a whole nother reality. I didn't even realize it. 
I stand before you today trying to convince you that there is another reality, a real reality and a truthful reality that is not the one that we live in. Do we have eyes to see the world for what it really is? How does the world answer the questions? What is life all about? Why am I here? What happens to me when I die? Where should I find meaning? What is success? What should I live for? These are kind of religious answers that a materialistic culture gives materialistic answers to. But they seem so normal to us, as it's all that we've ever known. So we have to begin by understanding that the world that we live in is not this innocent, cuddly, faith-friendly, family-friendly, God-friendly culture with really good people who have good intentions and everything that's going on in this world from the government to the marketplace, it's all kind of good because it's all that I've ever known. The Bible says that this world is a place that is set against God and lives in a kind of rebellion against God that isn't necessarily marching armies against God. Rather, worse than that, it is simply living as if he doesn't exist because we don't want a God to whom we are accountable. And don't even bring up judgment. That is the world. And John says, don't love the values and the priorities of this world. Don't do it. Secondly, love not the things in this world. There is a loving of the values and the priorities of this world that will lead you then to buy into the stuff, the materialism of the world that we live in. Don't do that either. Now, one primary value of this world, of course, is to find significance in the stuff that we have. A culture that lives for this world and this life is going to tell you the more of this world and this life that you have, the more meaning, the more happiness, the more success, the more gladness that you're going to have, and it pushes us to try to get as much of this world as we can. John says, don't derive your meaning from the things of this world. And again, John is talking about our hearts here. A perspective on life that lives as if this life is all that there is. This world is all that there is. So therefore, I am going to get the most of it that I possibly can. This is materialism. It places a price tag on everything. Everything is worth whatever it is worth financially or materially. Now, right now, many of you are thinking of other people who are this way. It is easy to see in other people, isn't it? I mean, you go to a party or you go to some social gathering, and there's always some blowhard guy there who's, uh, you know, talking about his stuff. His house, his cars, you know, his, uh, his money, his stocks, his investments, his jet skis, his toys, his trips, and on and on and on. He's going with this, that, and the other. And what do we think as we're around people like that? We think he's so materialistic. I don't like him. 
He's so about stuff all the time. Oh, I can't wait to get out of this party. Get away from people like that. So materialistic. And then we drive by his house and we envy him for having it. And we see him in his nice car and we envy him for having it. Or we see her in her nice body or her nice uh, clothes or her nice perfect family or whatever it might be and we, we resent her for having those things and we sit back and we say those people are so materialistic and I don't like them for that. And what does that reveal? The same values are in my own heart or I could give a rip what kind of house he lives in or car he drives or clothes she has. I am viewing the world materialistically as well. This is not just about people who have a lot. It's about anybody who looks at stuff as what is life is all about. Jesus says this about it. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That is not what life is all about. And so we see then in this world that's filled with envies and rivalries and comparisons and competitions and people that just dog eat dog, scrambling, stabbing each other in the back, uh, suing and doing all the things, scrambling to try to get as much as I possibly can of this world, fighting over every dollar. All of that flows out of a value and a philosophy and an approach to life that says this world is where it's at. This is the most important thing. Indeed, it's the only thing. And God, I think I'll just rather not talk about it. I'm living for this place. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm getting at here? I would think if you've... uh, been anywhere in this culture, you have seen what I'm talking about. The elevation of self, the magnification of man. We're building our Tower of Babel technologically or financially or whatever it might be. We have our own little Towers of Babel in our house where we're building these statues and these trophies to the significance of me. Why? Because I am the center of the world. This world is is the most important thing and I'm the most important thing in the world. So therefore, look at my tower. This is me. That's the world. This world is ultimate. It's all that there is. It's all that matters. There's no God. There's no eternity. There's no accountability. And there's no judgment. And I just would rather live that way. Thank you very much. Do we see what is behind all of this that we live in? Or are we spiritually superficial with our eyes to see what's really going on in the world. Let me give you, just to to illustrate this, last week was the Super Bowl. Now imagine with me if you had the opportunity to invite the Apostle John to your Super Bowl party last week. And so you see him at church last week, because I'm sure if he was here, he would probably go to Bethel Church, I would think so. (laughs) He is uh, here, and... You go up to him and say, hey, Apostle John, do you have any plans tonight? I'm having a Super Bowl party. I'd love to have you come over. And, uh, you know, he, he says, well, strangely, I, I, I don't have plans. I would love to come. So he shows up on your doorstep. 
And you open the door, Apostle John, I can't believe you're here. We're so honored. Come on in. And there's snacks on the counter and there's, there's drinks in the cooler. And we're over in the other room. We're watching the game. And you say to him, you say, and you know what? I, I would really love to hear an apostle's perspective on the Super Bowl. Have you watched one before? He goes, well, no, I, I've never watched a Super Bowl before. I, I'd love to know what you have to think about it. And you say to him, because you know what? This Super Bowl uh, will be the most watched event in all of human history. In our world, this is, this is like really, really important. And John goes, oh, okay, well, where do I sit? And, and uh, these nachos are great. <laughs> so he sits down and he watches the game with you. And he watches the commercials. And he thinks to himself, in this culture, possessions are really important. And he watches the, uh, the spectacle and the obsession over the game. And the, every play replayed over and over. And the analysis down to the detail of every little nuance of the game. And he thinks to himself, in this culture, games are really important. And he, and he watches Beyonce gyrate at the halftime show, although I would like to think the apostle would turn his head away, along with every man in this room. And he thinks to himself, sexual expression outside of marriage is really important in this culture. And he watches the whole thing. And you say to him after the game, John, your first Super Bowl, man, what did, what did you think? What would the Apostle John have to say about the Super Bowl? I think that he would say, I think your world must be very sad, very despairing. Why? Because these are not the things that bring satisfaction to a soul that wasn't made for gyrations and wasn't made for possessions and wasn't made for games. It was made for God. And I wonder, as you watched the Super Bowl, what did you see? Do you see the world for what it is? And do you realize that there is a whole value and philosophy set that drives it, which to us feels so normal because it's all that we've known, but it is not true. It is a lie. Do not love the world or the things in the world don't live for any created thing. And he goes on to say, if anyone does love this world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why can't lovers of God also be lovers of the world? Why not? John says, for this reason, those two loves are incompatible. They are mutually exclusive. 
You cannot love the one and love the other. Why? Because the world is set against God. The world doesn't care about God. Indeed, the world hates God. Now, we don't think, oh, they don't hate. They hate God. Or they would obey him. And they clearly don't. Can I love a world that hates God and love God at the same time? Can I love somebody? Can I love my mom and somebody who hates my mom and wants her dead at the same time? John says you can't love God and love those that hate God. It is impossible. If I love the world, I think it's my ultimate. I'm all about the things of the world, my dreams, my, when I lay in bed, I just think about constantly how I can have more and more of this world or be somebody more and more in this world, have significance more and more from this world. If that's the direction of my life, and I say at the same time, I love God. John says, no, you don't. You can't. It is impossible to love both. And that's why it's a really, really good test of whether or not I have genuinely experienced salvation. Because they are so mutually exclusive. It makes it easy in a sense. Jesus said the same thing. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And money there represents that material world that we live in. Note, though, it doesn't say that God and money are incompatible. It is the love of God and the love of money that are incompatible. It is the heart. It is the values of my heart. I cannot love both at the same time. I'll either love one or hate the other. That's what Jesus said. Now, some of you still are in a fog on this, I think, and so to make this very clear, I offer this as an assist. It is like saying that I love cats and dogs. It is like saying I love war and peace. I love Democrats and Republicans. I love the Sox and the Cubs. I love Ford trucks and Chevy trucks. I love socialism and capitalism. I love Purdue and IU. <laughs> I love the Bears and the Packers at the same time. So, See, now it's starting to, this whole thing's unfolding for you. It's starting to make sense what John is saying. And as simple as those are, to realize there are no more diametrically opposite, hostile, opposed to each other realities in the entire universe than God and a world that hates him. You can't love both at the same time. You can hate both. You can love one or the other, but you cannot love both. So do you get that we cannot love light and darkness, sin and righteousness, the values of Satan and the values of Jesus, God and sin, God and my possessions, God and admiration of others, God and financial security, God and sex, God and anything that is not God. You cannot love both. 
It is either one or the other, or neither. So when I say I love the Father, what I am saying in my heart is that I am deriving meaning and significance, my worship, my life, the direction of the, where I'm going with my life. Not perfectly, again, but directionally, I am heading towards God, and I want my life to matter in the eyes of God. When I say I love the world, I am loving the things in the world, I'm embracing the values of the world, and I'm finding my worship and meaning and identity from this world. Those are so opposite, they cannot be true at the same time. I'll either love the one or hate the other. So let's just pause for a moment. That's a pretty challenging thing that he says there. Particularly to us in the richest country, richest churches, richest Christians, in the history of the world. What do you see when you look at your life? What are your dreams? From what are you actually finding your security and your hope? Is it God or something other than him? Now, I need to tie up a loose end here because like all the other evidences that we've seen, I don't want anybody to sit here and think, oh, I need to go and do that so I can be saved. And here you are, you're sitting here, you're going, okay, love for the Father. You can't generate this yourself. Like all the other Evidences, they are the fruit, they are the byproduct of genuine salvation. Here's why we can say this about love. John's going to say in a few verses. How do we come to love the Father? How does the direction of our life become oriented towards God? We love him because he first loved us. Where does this love come from? It doesn't come from me. Because naturally, in my flesh, I hate God. I am opposed to God. I don't want a God for whom I'm accountable. I don't want to give an account eternally for my sins. I don't want morality. I want freedom. I want to live the way that I want. I want to be the, the determiner of my destiny. I want, essentially, I want to be God. My own God. I don't love God. So when I come to love God and the direction of my life is towards affections for the Father, where'd that come from? And what John is saying is this, that comes from God. And that directional change of my affections away from the world that calls me to believe and to live for it is an evidence that the Spirit of God is within me and I have been regenerated by God. So don't sit here and say, oh, I'm going to try to love God more so I go to heaven and I don't go to hell. No. You come in faith to Jesus. Believe in his work on the cross. Trust in him and let God change that heart. And I'd love to see that happen right now. Believe in Christ. Now for your encouragement, I want to share something that was sent to me this week. I got an email this week from one of our Celebrate Recovery uh, volunteers. And, you know, last week I talked from the previous passage about um, 
uh, new believers and um, young middle lappers in the faith and then the more mature believers and how simple it is in terms of what new believers must know and believe in order to become saved. Well, I got this email related to that. Good morning, Pastor Steve. I thought you might like to know about a gal in my CR group. She's been trying to figure out a great many things in her life and felt like there were pieces of this puzzle that weren't even on the table until Sunday. She was sitting in the service and heard the simplicity of the gospel and it all finally made sense to her. She told me she started crying and told God that she was a sinner and believed that he had done all for her that he said he had done. She said she wasn't sure what had happened, but that she truly believed. As we talked about her coming to saving faith in Jesus, the light in her eyes shone so brightly. She is such a precious gal, praising God big time. So, last week, this woman, I don't know who you are, maybe you're here right now, thank you for this, what an encouragement it is to us, came to this church confused, wondering what life is all about. And through the gospel, came to understand and believe. The, the, it's like the blinders come off, and you realize this world is not all that there is. This world is not the source of my happiness. It can't be. There is a God who loves me. I'm a sinner accountable to him. He sent his son Jesus to die for my sin and says that all who believe in him will have their sins forgiven and will be given the gift of eternal life. And that woman came to understand and she believed. And I wonder about you today. You tired of this world? If not, go out there, keep trying. Keep drinking the salt water. It'll just make you thirstier for something else. And that something else is the one that your soul was designed and made for. It is the God of heaven who loves you, and by your faith and trust in his son, creates a new love within you. It is a love for him and a directional change to where I am no longer finding my meaning in the things of this world. I am finding my identity and my sense of purpose in him. And John calls that love. Would that that would be true today. For every single one of us to know the God who loves us. Now, in a future message, we're going to uh, deal with what he says in verses 16 and 17, and I'm looking forward to that. But I have two implications here to share with you for, verses, um, for verse 15. Here's the first one. The battle with world love does not end at salvation, it begins the battle with world love does not end with salvation, it begins. If you think, well, I've become a Christian and now I walk into the world and I watch the Super Bowl and I see all the commercials and the billboards and I drive by the commercial sections of our community and I think to myself, oh, whew, I have no interest in those things. I can't believe anybody would live for them. Wrong. When I am not a Christian, I don't have that other love. All I have is love for this world. There's no battle at all. But once I become a Christian, now I have the spirit within me. Now I have this new love. And there is this ongoing struggle and tension 
to keep my love for God supreme. That's why God commanded it. What's the first command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't command things that we don't need to work on. That's a struggle. Somebody else said it well. Here's what he said about this struggle. Worldliness does not, at first, talk to you about bad things. It talks to you about things. And slowly, the eyes of your heart will become heavy. They will start to close, and eventually, you will fall asleep. You'll stop reading the Bible, stop praying, stop evangelizing, and keep your Christian friendships at the surface. Then, when weeks habitually pass with nary a thought of God, even as you move your mouth to praise songs at church, worldliness makes the decisive move. Either it pulls you into drastic sin, like leaving your spouse, or it pulls up the blanket and makes you so comfy that you don't awake. It's hard to know which strategy is scarier. In the American church, and no doubt in our church, there are many who profess, I'm a follower of Jesus, that's what my whole thing's all about, thank you very much, walk out the doors of the church and live every minute of the week for the world and living for meaning derived from it. And what John wants to say is, unbeliever, wake up and become saved. And Christian, realize there is a battle. And you say, well, how do I fight that battle? Because, man, those commercials are really cool. And some of the new technology stuff, man, is so awesome. If I have it, then I'm really important. And on the on it goes. How do I battle it? And I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, but i got to give you one thing, all right? How do we fight against this? Here's how. We suffocate world love by stoking God love. Okay? You suffocate the one, or as the old theologian said, you mortify the one, and you stoke the other. John Owen, when someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin. That is great. Because what it's saying is in the human heart, as, as I stoke and build this desire and love for God the Father, it crowds out the love and the desire for meaning derived from the things of the world. And so we suffocate the one by stoking the other. Well, how do I stoke love for God? And here we are now on things that many of us know well, but we sort of don't give ourselves to. We stoke love for God by worship, and we stoke God, uh, love for God by confessing our sins and, and being in prayer, and God's word rises up those, those loves, and by being vulnerable with one another and acknowledging our brokenness and as we are living in community with one another and accountability and serving one another, as we are hearing the word of God proclaimed, as we're hiding it in our hearts, as we are perhaps fasting to fight against a certain love of, of something in the world, as we give worldly things, possessions, and value that we have to the Lord's work, it minimizes how much I'm deriving meaning from those things and many other things that we could point to. These are all means of grace that God has given. And when God's people ignore them or poo-poo them or it becomes a ritual, now the love of the world begins to rise and there is a, temp a, a, a tension 
Paul writes about Demas who forsook him because he loved the world. Served with the Apostle Paul. Faked out even the Apostle Paul. I don't think you're going to meet Demas in heaven. What did Paul point to? Love for the world. Living for this world. Friends, don't do that. Don't do that. Stoke love for God. Don't love a fleeting world that won't last anyway. Suffocate the one and stoke the other. Love not the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not not in them. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us do this. We know that the temptation to it dwells within our heart because in our hearts naturally there dwells no good thing. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We thank you that you have given us a new heart and with that new heart, new loves and affections and I pray that we would be a congregation where all who attend are genuinely believers And all genuine believers are working as hard as we can to love you more and more.